Hey friend, you're listening to the Devoted Women Podcast. The audio you are about to listen to is a recording from our in-person Bible study meeting and is intended to be listened to after having completed the lesson in your workbook. So for this particular study, you can head on over to amazon.com, search Engaging God's Word Genesis, get your copy, do the work, and then hit play. We are so glad that you have joined us. So our lesson this week begins coattailing off of where Candace left off two weeks ago. And so since it's been two weeks, I'll go ahead and give us a tiny little recap. Um, we know that the brothers initially went to Egypt, went back home, talked to their father, right? And it finally came to the point where they needed to go back. And they returned to Egypt and they were met by Joseph. And they were surprised that they got to go and feast with him. It was kind of a huge deal to have that honor. Um, then they get the supplies that they needed to head back home, their grain and everything. And we see everything's replaced in their sack. And then we see that they were tested by Joseph, right? And the silver cup was put into Benjamin's sack. And upon his men chasing them down, all of them just kind of submitted to what had happened. And it was just this beautiful picture of no one was pointing blame. They all just kind of conceded to what the, their reality was, right? And then we saw that Judah courageously stepped in for his brother as he had promised to Jacob. And he risked his own life basically and subjected himself to a life of slavery by standing in for Benjamin. So we pick up right in Genesis 45, one verses or verse one through three. It says, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So now I can imagine that Joseph having staged this whole shoplifting of the cup thing, um, he likely had this whole elaborate plan of how he was eventually going to reveal himself to his brothers, right? And I bet as he imagined this and played out all the possible scenarios, he probably envisioned remaining cool, calm, and collected, right? He probably didn't expect to start weeping at um, Judah's response and the overwhelming change that's taken place in them. But so moved by that change and overwhelmed at the fact that they were no longer these selfish and betraying men that they weren't once were, and now they were rather united by brotherly love, and they had so much compassion for their father in Judah's retelling, like they're just, they're so concerned with how all of this is going to affect him. Um, 
Joseph was unable to maintain his emotional composure. And so he wept to the point that everyone could hear, even after he had them all clear out, um, which left only his brothers there with him in his presence. And then to his brothers, he goes ahead and he reveals his true identity. He was not only this Egyptian superpower before them, he was Joseph the brother that they betrayed all those years ago. And can you imagine up until this point, because this is the now third encounter he has with them, right? I can imagine he wanted to reveal himself from the get-go and to just start this whole process. But we see that this long, drawn-out process has allowed him to see what God has been doing in them and the change that has taken place and truly the, um, the weight of the sin that they had committed that was on their shoulders. So even in his emotional overwhelm, Joseph still displayed thoughtfulness and mercy and sent everyone away that was near so that they might not judge these brothers according to their past iniquities. He wanted no one else present for this very delicate and private conversation. So I thought that was so beautiful whenever I thought about that. Um, moving on to Genesis 45, verses 4 through 15, um, Joseph beckons his brothers and he says, come near to me. And because of the obvious distress and shock that was written all over their faces, like this is the brother we sold into slavery and basically left for dead. He could have gone and been killed for all they knew. They probably didn't even know he was alive or if he was alive. Well, obviously they didn't know if he was alive. Let me just say that. Um, but he could see that they were just completely overwhelmed and probably shaken in their boots, as we like to say, right? Um, he goes on to reveal his true identity, identity to his brothers once more, saying, I am your brother, Joseph. But this time he went on to include that small little detail, whom you sold into Egypt, to leave no room for doubt in their minds, right? This is the guy. This is your brother. Joseph didn't remind them of this past iniquity, though, this past horror that they had committed against him to condemn them, but to fully convince him that it truly was their brother and that they, the one that they thought they would never, ever see again. It was Joseph in the flesh. So then comes the unfolding of what I believe Joseph had planned to say all along. Verse 5 says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Joseph was already well aware of the fact that the weight of their sin was heavy on their shoulders. If we remember back to chapter 42, when he overheard their conversation, but they were unaware that he could actually understand them because they had a translator between them, remember? Um, they said, we are guilty. We are guilty. Joseph begged us for mercy and we wouldn't listen to him. Remember, they had their meal and he's in the pit crying out to them and they just ignored him. And then Reuben went on to pipe up and said, I told you, right? Present time. He pipes up and says, I told you. And now there's a reckoning for his blood. The payment for their sin was unfolding before their eyes in the consequences they now faced. Remember, they're standing before him guilty. Benjamin stole that cup, right? So the harvest of the natural law of sowing and reaping had finally come for them, and they were fully submitted to it. And Joseph knew it. 
He could see it written all over them. But God's mercy, his grace, and then unconditional love, right? Unconditional love. He says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. All along, God had been with Joseph. And while he could have never dreamed on his own, um, the story plot to this point would have played out like it did. God knew. God knew how this story was going to go. He had a purpose for it all. And every step of the way, we've seen that Joseph made the choice to remain true to Yahweh. And so God used him in a great and mighty way. And the same is true for us in our lives. We have that same choice to make, to choose God. And as in John 15, where Jesus is talking about the vine and the branches, and he's beckoning us to remain in him, right? That's the idea is... We just remain and he produces the fruit. Joseph remained all this time. He was devoted to Yahweh and the fruit that came about from his life, God's faithfulness playing out was just because he was committed to him. It had nothing to do with Joseph himself. God gave him the gifts and the abilities to do all he did for his greater purpose. So moving on to verse six, it reads, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. These men had no idea the scope of the devastation that laid before them in their future, right? They had no idea. It's only two years in. It wasn't even halfway over yet, not even halfway. So, we see here that Joseph is still our picture of Christ, as I pointed out in my um, last lesson that I taught. He had been sent by God, right? He was wrongly suffered all this time um, and in the past. And now because of what God had done in and through him, he was now the way to life. Again, this beautiful picture of Jesus for us. And not only was he the way to life, but he was the way to life for both the Jew and the Gentile here. God didn't send him just to serve, uh, preserve the life of the Jews. It definitely was probably prioritized for them. But he also saved all those Gentiles at the same time through what he was doing with Joseph there in Egypt. So the story of Joseph, he ant- it anticipates the forgiveness and the reconciliation made possible by the cross. And just as Jesus did, Joseph tenderly offers his betrayers forgiveness and the chance to reconcile. Verse 7 reads, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God's plan of redemption and restoration was now unfolding before Joseph's eyes. He was now able to see the bigger picture coming together, right? He assures his brothers that God's providence, which is God's divine protective care, is what led Joseph to this place. God was redeeming the wrong from all those years ago, and Joseph had fully and humbly submitted every ounce of pain and sorrow that he had experienced to that point over to God for this very moment. It was all worth it. And the real beauty of the whole thing is that Joseph did not say any of this to heap guilt on their shoulders, but rather to glorify God. And 
Joseph acknowledged God's sovereignty in every bit of his story. In Joseph's testimony of God's greater purpose in his suffering, he invited his brothers to trust and believe God for themselves. And now it was their turn to do their part to choose and trust Yahweh for themselves. So moving on, we read verse nine, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So Joseph beckons his brothers to waste no time, right? Go retrieve Jacob and come to Egypt where they will not only be spared from the famine, but they will be provided for and they will be given land suitable for them as shepherds, as people who keep livestock. Designating Goshen as their, de- as their dwelling place would have put them just close enough to Joseph to maintain contact with him, but far enough away that they wouldn't be absorbed into Egyptian society, making it possible to maintain both their ethnic and their religious distinctiveness from the pagans of the land, right? Not to mention that the land was just perfectly suitable for them um, and all that they had and their livestock and everything. So just as Joseph was beckoning his brothers to come, God also beckons us to come and to seek refuge in him, right? He says, come and I will give you rest. He says, come to the father through me. Come and be my child. Come and receive life. Come into my salvation. Come to me with your petitions. Come into the truth. Come into the light. We all receive that same inter, uh, in invitation to enter into the compassion of the Lord. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Joseph has compassion on his brothers. And so as I was studying, I came across Isaiah 55. And it's real famous for the one verse you'll see whenever I get to it, but I'm going to read it. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come by and and eat. And initially, is, oh, it says come by wine and milk without money and without price. God just gives freely, right? And this beckoning to come, it's, there's this urgency, that we need him. We need to come. We need to come and feast and receive what it is that um, he gives us. It says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why are you wasting your time on worthless things? Why are you wasting your money on worthless things? Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. 
verse 6 is so key. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There will come a day when there is no longer the opportunity for people to turn to the Lord, right? Seek him while he may be found. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's that popular one we all know, right? Verse 10 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Whenever we lean into the word, we know that blessing is coming, whatever it might look like, no matter our circumstances, right? But it shall accomplish that which I purpose. God's will, God's plan for glory and for our good and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, amen, and be led forth in peace. Mm. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall be shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. So each and every one of us and each and every member of Jacob's family receive these same invitations in this moment, right? Well, salvation, we know, looked different in the Old Testament. They didn't have the Messiah yet. They didn't have the shed blood of the Lamb. Each person, Jew and even Gentile, if you remember back how we saw with Rahab, just like you and I, we have the choice before us to answer this call to come to come and feast at the table of all the Lord has to offer, right? And to run to our God. We get to choose that who he is and what he says is true. So moving on in our text to verses 16 through 20, we see the picture of God's blessing once again overflowing to the people around his favored ones, those who are seeking, right? Or seeking him. So these Hebrews... These foreigners in the land, and even if you want to go a little bit further, shepherds, like the Egyptians had no regard for people who were shepherds, um, they would have been overlooked a hundred times over, a hundred times over. Yet here, because of God's favor and blessing in Joseph's life, it pleased Pharaoh to be able to help them. And so now they're reaping the reward of um, Joseph's faithfulness, right, and commitment to God. So... Acts 20, verse 35, the apostle Paul quotes Jesus saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And after nine years at this point of reaping the harvest of having Joseph as his right-hand man, Pharaoh, I can imagine that it brought him great joy to finally be able to give something back to him, right? To reward him outside of just things and title and stuff. He was actually going to get to help his loved ones, his family. So I can imagine for Pharaoh, um, that brought him joy. 
And then I also think that we get some insight here to how Joseph conducted himself as a person. I don't think he was running around whining about his his past and his situation and what his brothers had done to him and even how he suffered at the hand of Potiphar, right, and was thrown in jail. Like, I don't think he was a guy to just go around boohooing and being a Debbie Downer, right, and kind of getting the sympathy of others. Because if he had, I can imagine that this being his right-hand man now, right? I don't think Pharaoh would have been so quick to help these people who did this to him all that time ago, right? Joseph was a man of upright character who just moved forward. He didn't dwell on the past. He he just kept moving forward into what God had for him. And not only did Pharaoh say, come on in, he also sent wagons to help them move. I thought that was so cool. So if you think back to any time that we've read about people moving um, in our text so far, they load up their camels, they load up their donkeys, and they pretty much set up on foot. I can imagine some people probably rode a camel or a donkey here or there because we see that in our text and other places. But these wagons were a hot commodity in Egypt and like rare and they were about to blow these people's minds I can imagine um we can't forget that Jacob was a wealthy man so packing up and leaving wasn't going to be any small feat even though Pharaoh said like hey just leave all your stuff like he's so wealthy like that would be insane for him to just leave all of his wealth that he's built up until this point so now Pharaoh is basically sending him a bunch of U-Hauls for free to come in and get the job done, right? And free of charge. It was a great deal. So Genesis 45 verses 28 through 20 or 21 through 28. I'm sorry. Um, as the brothers are getting ready for their journey, Joseph makes sure that they have the provisions for the trip. And he also gives them bit, uh, gifts. And we also see once more that Ben is given this extra portion of favor. Right. And um, and this gift of generosity from his only full blooded brother. Can you imagine that there was probably some unity among the brothers and the mothers that they came from? I can imagine that maybe little clicks within the brothers. And then there was Benjamin all this time, his whole life, basically. He was now the only um, son of Rachel, that favored one. And so I can imagine it brought him great joy to finally be with his own blood brother. Not that they weren't all blood brothers, but you know what I mean customarily as with eating a meal concerning these gifts um as we saw them eating from joseph's table earlier this change of clothes that joseph gave them this gift it was a sign of honor that he bestowed upon them as his guests and as his brothers and again it's this beautiful picture of forgiveness redemption and reconciliation he now clothed them with the very favor and honor that they had stripped him of all those years ago and how ironic that it's again with this item of clothing right and i really don't doubt for one second that any of this was lost on the brothers right where we once took his coat, he's now giving us clothes. Like, ooh, I bet it just sank right into them. So Joseph went on to order even more provisions be sent for his father's journey to Egypt. And Joseph sends his brothers off with the instruction, do not quarrel along the way. Was that weird for anyone else after we see um, 
this picture, obviously, right, that they they had change and that they do love each other and they're looking out for one another. But can you imagine like, yes, there's this initial unity. Can you imagine the potential conversations and the arguments that were about to go down and all the potential finger pointing, right? Um, After all that they had been through with Joseph till this point and thinking back even to their first trip to Egypt and like, oh my gosh, you know, it could have potentially gone awry. Um, But it was a reminder from Joseph to move forward into what God was calling them to, a new beginning and truly a whole new life. Like they were uprooting everything they knew to come to a new land. It was a big deal. So I want us to think back and consider Moses, who was the author of this book, right? And don't you think that the original audience, the Israelites, coming out of Egypt, moving all around in the wilderness, those set to embark on a strange new world, right? The promised land as we know it. Don't you think they also needed this very same reminder in their big move not to quarrel along the way? So while it may seem initially displaced for us, like, do they even need this reminder? Like, they're doing great. Yes. Yes, they do. And even us as God's people, we need that same reminder not to quarrel along the way as we're walking and moving in God's plan in our life, especially alongside a whole church full of people, not only in our local church, but globally. Like, we are to be united and not quarrel and work for God's glory to go forth. So unity amid God's people is key to accomplish his will and purpose in this world. And it is a lesson relevant for the original audience, the Israelites then, and it is relevant for us now. So perhaps they didn't quarrel along the way as they were instructed. Or maybe not. We don't know. I can imagine, like, even if someone told me that, I'd probably still have some words to say. But I can almost guarantee you that they did talk about how on earth were they going to go home and tell Jacob, their father, and how on earth was he going to respond? Because not only would they be bringing this great news, right? Joseph is alive. He's ruler over Egypt, all this stuff. But they would simultaneously be breaking his heart because he doesn't know what they did all those years ago. The truth about Joseph was finally going to be brought to the light. And remember back earlier whenever I was talking about those invitations of Jesus to come, when he says, come into the light, Well, the reality, it sounds all good and fluffy, right? But the reality of coming into the light means that all the darkness and the sin that is harbored in our lives and inside of us is exposed by that light. It's an invitation. And so, but it's a freeing invitation, right? Can you imagine like once they tell Jacob and get to get that off their chest, how much lighter they must feel as humans? Um, So it was for the brothers upon their arrival that this great sin was going to come to the light. And we don't get the narrative of how it happened. And I thought that was a really beautiful point in one of the commentaries I was reading. They pointed out that this was a private conversation. It wasn't something that Moses, like, we don't need all this dirt here as much as us being nosy and we might want it, right? Moses left that for them 
right? Whatever was said was kept between them and we just get to see what we need. So, but we do read of Jacob's initial disbelief. His long lost beloved son, the favored one was not only alive, but he was ruler over all of Egypt. Like no way. I can imagine I probably would have that same response. There's no way. Like, you're full of baloney. Um, but ultimately, their testimony of all that had happened, right, and all the goods right before his eyes that were provided to move, um, we see that Jacob's spirit was revived. And he said in verse 28, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Can you imagine his sweet daddy heart finally just like, like a huge exhale, you know, like I'm going to get to see the sun I thought was gone forever. It's just so beautiful. So moving on to Genesis 46 verses one through seven, it says everyone loaded up and they set off back to Egypt, but not with, or no, Jacob, not back to Egypt. They were going to Egypt. <laughs> so they took a little pit stop along the way though. And we see that Jacob stopped in Beersheba, where both Isaac and Abraham sojourned for a while. And there he offered sacrifices to God before departing the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants. It is very likely that he was seeking God's approval for this move. And Candace pointed out that um, whenever God's speaking to him here, he calls him Jacob, Jacob. God had changed his name to Israel, remember? So by calling him Jacob, he's calling out the doubt that's in his heart, right? And the doubt that he's experienced. And um, we see that Jacob is coming before God and he's seeking God's approval for this move. And as we read previously, read previously in chapter 26, all the way back to 26 verses one through five, remember Isaac was strictly forbidden from going into Egypt. And so was Jacob struggling with this idea of like, could I possibly being, be being led astray, right? Am I following God's path? Um, are my people, are all my family, are they going to be contaminated by the idolatry that's in Egypt and in this land? Because clearly that's what God was keeping Isaac from initially, remember? Um, and by making the stop, I think Jacob really was hoping to settle any doubts that he was having. And we see that in his faithfulness, God shows up and God speaks peace into Jacob's life. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there. I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So I want us to think back and just think about the reality that God doesn't just keep some of his promises. God keeps all of his promises. So I want us to take a second look all the way back to chapter 15 and recall one of the promises that God made to Abraham before he had any of his children. Like he didn't even have Ishmael yet at this point when God gave him this promise. Um, chapter 15, verse 13 says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So as I was reading this and thinking back here, was Jacob aware 
of this word from God to Abraham? We don't know. But even if he was, I highly doubt that he was really applying this specific word, this specific promise to his life and his circumstance, right? Because would he really have gone into this foreign land and been a sojourner knowing that his family was going to be oppressed and that they were going to be um, subjected to slavery, right? Highly unlikely. So in both of these promises, they're both true and they're both going to come to fruition. We get to see that the reality that blessing of God and suffering for his sake and his cause, they often coexist as followers of Christ, right? In the New Testament, it's made very clear that we are going to suffer for Christ. And I don't know if you have experienced that, but I have to some degree in my life and it's not fun, but at the same time, there's blessing and there's reward and it's so good. So God promises his presence and his provision for Jacob in Egypt. And we know that from chapter one of Exodus, that they indeed multiplied just as he had told Abraham and and even as he retold Jacob, right? They did multiply and then they ultimately became a threat to the new Pharaoh at the time. And as a result, they were afflicted with many burdens and that's Exodus 1, 11. But we know that in Egypt, that wasn't the end of their story because there is more to the promise of Abraham from chapter 15 in the fact that freedom was coming. I shall bring you out with great possessions, right? And he'd even promised to Jacob, like, you're going to return to the promised land. Jacob just had no idea that it was going to be after he was dead, right? And even if he did, you know, he had no idea, no idea. So God proved to not only the Israelites, but also the Egyptians, and I'm still thinking in Exodus here, that through every plague and every sign and wonder that he performed there, that he was the one true God. He worked through his people's suffering for their good, their deliverance that they were going to experience, the reassurance that they got knowing that he is king, where Pharaoh himself was trying to um, exalt himself as king over them, and not only king, but God, right? He claimed some divinity in his life. God made clear that he was the one true God, that he was king, he was trustworthy, he was faithful. All of the attributes that we talk about all the time and his characteristics, they were true. And not only did they that was he working for their good, but he was working for his glory at the same time. And to Jacob, Jacob, God so tenderly assured him that he would be brought back, like I said, to the promised land, although he didn't know when, and that he was going to get to die with Joseph by his side. And so the family moved on and they journeyed into Egypt. And then in Genesis 46, we, in verses 8 through 27, we get to take this small kind of, well, it's kind of long really in the grand scheme of things. Um, We get to take this short little commercial break right? And read exactly who all went into Egypt. We get a pretty little genealogy. Um, These little breaks in the Bible are basically the ancient version of Ancestry.com, 
for the Israelites, right? And by documenting each and every person, God's God's people who multiply in Egypt, as we read, they're going to get to be able to trace their lineage back to specific people. So that's really cool. But then they would also have a document to see the magnitude of the multiplication that did take place according to the promise, which was proof of God's promises kept. So I don't know if any of y'all here like counted each person, right? I had the initial like want to because it goes on to say like Jacob's people were so many people in all, right? Well, if you go and count that number and then the number it claims, there's a little bit of number discrepancy. Even whenever you go to Egypt and read about the same number and then there's an Acts, a number that's referenced in the New Testament to this one passage and there's different numbers there. So I don't have time to talk about it here, but if you want to talk about that, I've got an explanation thanks to my handy dandy study Bibles. So if you caught that and want to talk about it, I'm happy to later. Um, that's all there. And then we conclude with verses 28 through 33. And we read the emotional reunion of Jacob and Joseph and how they wept on each other's necks. And can you just imagine, like, I do not know what it's like to lose a child and think they're dead for all those years to... There he is in the flesh. Like, I can't even imagine. It's crazy. And then we read on to find, uh, or we read on that Joseph goes on to give them instructions on how to converse with Pharaoh when the time comes and um, how that they should say certain things, right? So that everyone's story is consistent, which I mean, it's just a mercy and a grace, really, if you look at it. But truly at the beginning and the end of this lesson, I was so encouraged by the raw and the authentic and honest displays of emotions, right? Too often we suppress our feelings because of fear of what others might think, or get this, we misuse them and allow them to be controlled by our flesh. But the reality is that our emotions are gifts from God and they're given to us to deepen our human experience and even our spiritual experience. And when we're led by the Holy Spirit, they can enrich our everyday lives. So I hope as even as we continue on in Genesis and look back at all these emotional encounters that we let that be an encouragement in our lives, because I know it is for me to. First of all, stop letting my flesh control my emotions and rather experience spirit-led emotions, right? And and deepen the, ex- the experience that I have with my sisters in Christ or my husband or whoever because we're selling ourself, ourselves short whenever we don't. Whenever we don't weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, we're missing out. That is an invitation of God to... Um, deepen our experience here with others and with him. So I hope y'all like me were encouraged with that and we'll just let out that sob when you need to let the sob out, right? Or cry out a praise when you need to cry out a praise and not care what anybody thinks. So let me pray and then we will get out of here. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come. God, we thank you, Lord, that you have beckoned us into your family, that you have called us into the light. God, as painful as that might be sometimes to be exposed before you and even exposed to 
those around us that we love. God, it is a cleansing and it is a healing work. God, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you have given us the light. God, we thank you that you are the bread of life. God, you are sustenance. God, we thank you that you are the way. God, and we thank you that you are the truth. God, we thank you for your consistency. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. And God, ultimately, we thank you for your forgiveness. God, and your reconciliation back to you. God, back into relationship that was broken all those years ago at the beginning where we started the study. God, you made the way and you just beckon us to come. God, so I pray that each one of us will make the choice to choose you each and every day. God, that we will commune with you and go out and glorify you, God, and and tell others who have yet to hear the call, God, or who have yet to make a move towards you. God, I pray that you help us to share your news, share the gospel, God, that you have come to save. God, we love you and we praise you and we just thank you for who you are and what you've done and God, all of what you've yet to do. We love you and praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen.